Good morning. My name's Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you. This morning, we're starting a new sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. This past Wednesday, which was Ash Wednesday, we saw in the middle of Luke's Gospel how Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so he begins his journey toward the cross. But along the way, he tells stories. Stories uh, that shape his hearers and particularly his disciples to follow after him in the cross-oriented life. These stories are called parables. And for the next several Sundays in Lent, we're going to be taking one parable per week and listening to what God has to tell us, starting this week with the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Luke 10, 25 through 37. And don't check out. This is a familiar parable, I know. Um, Christians know it, and and many non-Christians know it as well. But this morning, I want us to approach this parable with new eyes, through first century Jewish eyes. And when we look at this story through first century Jewish eyes, one of the things we immediately see is the concept of honor and shame. Let me show you what I mean. Look with me at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So this scene opens up with a sort of sparring match between Jesus and this lawyer. Some of your Bibles might say scribe. Some of your Bibles might say teacher of the law. Same thing. It's good to remember, though, that Jesus is in new territory here. Remember, he's moving out of Galilee, where he's known and comfortable, and and now he's winding his way toward Jerusalem. But in all these little towns and villages along the way, Jesus' reputation precedes him. He's not just any teacher. He says things that no teacher before him has ever said. He does things that no one has ever done. No one's ever seen the kinds of things that, that Jesus is doing. He's quite, really, quite the rising star in first century Palestine. So whenever Jesus would come to a village, crowds Big crowds would gather. And in a Jewish culture, when a rabbi came to visit, he was hosted by another rabbi, another scribe, another teacher of the law. And these two rabbis would have a public debate about the law. And the people of the town, many, many, many of them would come and listen to this. Like this was their Friday night thing. This is what they would do. Sounds very interesting to me, and maybe to Daniel, maybe not to many of you. But anyway, with these debates, there was was a protocol. Think of it like a courtroom. Um, There's a protocol on who speaks, how to speak, when to speak, all that kind of stuff. Same with Jewish culture. There was a protocol in these events. In Jewish culture, the hosting rabbi would begin by standing up, which was a sign of honor. It was a way of showing respect to a 
the visiting superior rabbi, the hosting rabbi would stand up and ask the visiting rabbi a pretty basic general question. Not, not a boring question, but just something to kind of break the ice and get the ball rolling. After the hosting rabbi would ask this question, the, the visiting rabbi would then answer that question broadly speaking, sort of in general terms as well. Then it would go back to the hosting rabbi again, asking a little bit more specific question, to which the visiting rabbi would give a little more specific answer. And they'd keep narrowing in, and kind of this tennis match would be going on until the moment when the hosting rabbi would see a chink in the armor and would go in for the kill shot. So you see. So this lawyer begins in verse 25, and he stands up as a sign of respect, right? No, this hosting rabbi is not trying to respect Jesus at all. Luke reveals his intentions, doesn't he? He stands up, why? To put him to the test. He wants to see if Jesus is legit. If Jesus is orthodox, if he believes rightly, teaches rightly, if he really is this prophet, this rabbi who's come from God to speak on behalf of God, is he legit or is he a fraud? And this is really vicious stuff uh, because, as I said, the first century Jewish world, that the culture revolved around honor and shame. And if, if you were a person of honor then you were a person of value. You were a person who was highly respected. You were a person who was listened to, whose opinions matter. If you were not a person of honor, if you were a person of dishonor, nobody cared. Nobody listened to your opinions. Nobody regarded you. Nobody valued you. And the thing is, the only way you grew in honor in that day was by taking somebody else's. It really isn't all that different, say, in, in politics today right? Need I remind you that we have another upcoming election season? Yeah. It's really one of those times when I wish humans could just hibernate and wake up in 2021. So in election season these days, how does a candidate go up in the polls? How? By taking somebody else down, right? By shaming them, by, ex by exposing them, by exploiting them. So this lawyer, he's testing Jesus. He's trying to expose him. And he asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a basic question. What, what do I need to do to live with God happily forever? This is what the people of Israel has, have been about for centuries. Now it's Jesus' turn, right? Remember the protocol. Hosting rabbi has asked Jesus a general question, now it's Jesus' turn to answer it generally. Is that what Jesus does? No. Jesus breaks the protocol, doesn't he? Jesus sees what's in this man's heart, and he switches things up on him. Instead of answering the lawyer's question, Jesus asks another question. Verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So it's at this point that if you're a Jew in this audience, first century, you look at your friend beside you and, and you say, ooh, ooh, this is going to be good. You lean up on your seat a little bit. We're going to put some butter on that popcorn. 
But the lawyer is stunned by this, but he keeps his cool, doesn't he? He's smooth. Verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Good answer. Good answer. Because you know what he just did? He just summed up the Ten Commandments, the laws that we heard this morning during our time of confession. If you have your worship guide nearby, turn with me to page two of the worship guide. Page two of the worship guide. Here's one way of organizing these Ten Commandments. Here's a way. The first four commandments have to do with loving God. Don't have any gods but me. Don't worship idols. Don't take God's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath holy. All four of these commandments are about loving God. They're about having a right relationship with God, right? And when we look at the next six commandments, what are they all about? Yeah, loving our neighbors. So, honor your father and mother. Don't steal, don't kill, don't murder, don't commit adultery, and don't covet. So look, this lawyer knows his stuff. And beyond that, he's used two Bible verses to explain it, which is like brownie points. So Deuteronomy 6, 8 You shall love the Lord your God with everything you are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he goes back a book to Leviticus and says in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This guy knows how to read the Bible. It's a perfect answer. It's a biblical answer. It's a tight answer, a drop the mic kind of answer. It's a what is Jesus going to do or say now kind of answer. All right, so by now the protocol here has been blown to bits. The lawyer asked a question, then Jesus asked another question, which the lawyer then answered, hoping for some kind of equilibrium to happen now. Now it's time to get back on track. So let's go. Next question, Jesus. But no. Jesus breaks protocol again. Verse 28, he didn't ask him. He said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And the lawyer's thinking, well, that little. (laughs) Jesus says, that's right. That's all you have to do. Just love God with your whole heart every moment of every day, with everything you are, keeping all of his commandments, never breaking them. Love your neighbor as yourself, treating them always with kindness and grace, never saying or thinking anything bad about them. Do this and you will live. You will inherit eternal life. Now, what's the lawyer supposed to say to that? Because he's really in a corner right now, isn't he? Because if he says, yeah, I've done that, then everyone who knows him is going to say, baloney. And nobody's going to listen to anything else he has to say. But if he says, come on, Jesus, who, who in the world could ever do that? Then he insinuates that the law is irrelevant. And he kind of puts himself out of a job, doesn't he? So the lawyer's uh, in boiling hot water here. And he's done it to himself. But it's no fun to be in this man's shoes. He's starting to sweat. He needs an out. He needs an escape hatch. A trap door that leads him out of this really, really uncomfortable spot. And so look what he does in verse 29. 
But he, desiring to justify himself, that is, desiring to save himself and his reputation from dishonor and shame in the eyes of the crowd, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, when it comes to the lawyer's relationship with God, it's pretty hard to judge. By all external appearances, this lawyer, this teacher of the law, loves God. He, he doesn't put any gods before God. He doesn't worship idols. He's, he doesn't He keeps the Sabbath holy, all that stuff. But when it comes to his relationship with other people, well, that's a bit easier to judge, isn't it? Of course he hasn't been perfect. And he's surrounded by a a cloud of witnesses who are willing to prove that, to back that up. His only escape, his only escape is if he can reduce the scope of the word neighbor. His only chance is if he can take the general word neighbor and turn it into a specific demographic that looks exactly like him and that he really doesn't have much reason to have a problem with. That's his way out, and that's what he tries with Jesus. He's hoping, of course, that Jesus will say, come on, you know who your neighbor is. It's your fellow Jew. It's your fellow Jew who is a true and faithful descendant of Abraham. You know this. But of course, Jesus doesn't say that. No, once again, Jesus doesn't play by the rules. He tells this man a story. And he tells him a crime story, which is even better. Starting in verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So, here's the main character. In in Luke's parables, he introduces the main character right up front. Here's the main character. But he has no name, no identification. We know absolutely nothing about him. He's just a man. All we know is that he's going down, that is down the mountain, downhill, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, I've never been to Israel. Has anyone here been to Israel? Oh, very good. Cool. My birthday's on April 10th. I'd love to go. Just (laughs) throwing that out there, no pressure. It's April 10th, Deanna. But I've read that this particular road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's very narrow, it's very windy, it's very, very dangerous. Travelers on this road were incredibly vulnerable. For one thing, it was surrounded, the whole road was surrounded by these big boulders and and caves where robbers could hide. And, And on top of that, there were all these makeshift weapons around, stones and sticks, things to beat people up with. Crimes were always, always, always happening on this road. It's not just don't go there after dark. It's don't go there anytime and especially don't go there alone. But this man, unnamed, unidentified, is going alone. And what do you know? Jesus says he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. So here's this man lying in the middle of the road, stripped down probably to his undergarments since the overgarments were the only garments of value. They would have things like color and embroidery on them. Um, He was abandoned and half dead, meaning unconscious, unresponsive. This man's in very, very bad shape. But here's the kicker. 
Imagine this man lying down in the road, stripped to his undergarments, completely unconscious. If that's this man's condition, no clothing, no talking, no interacting, what can you not know about him? What can you not? Hmm? Identity. Identity? Yeah, ethnicity. If he's Jewish, can't tell if he's Jewish. Because we can identify people through their clothing, right? If you're walking through an airport and you see a man wearing pointy, steel-toed boots, ironed, heavily creased jeans, big shiny belt buckle, an ironed plaid shirt with pearl buttons on, on, the, on the pockets, and a 10-gallon hat on his head, like we immediately know this man is from Providence, Rhode Island. <laughs> And of course, we can identify people by the way they talk as well, right? So from north to south in dialect, it goes you guys to you all, and then it goes to y'all. And um, I won't name names, but it's one of my wives. When you get <laughs> far enough south, as in close to the bayous, uh, some very confused people begin using the plural possessive form of y'all, which is, I'm not kidding, y'allses. Y'all's this, yes. I'm not making this up. I have text messages to prove it. So. so this man is completely unidentifiable. Is he a Jew? Is he a Gentile? Nobody knows. It's a common highway. This guy could be anybody. And that's just Jesus' point. This man, whoever he is, is about to die. Who will help him? Oh, here comes somebody. Look at verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, no doubt returning from the temple. He just made his sacrifices, just received cleansing for his own sins and for the sins of the people in his congregation. But notice what he does. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. You see, priests were considered to be very holy people. They couldn't be defiled by a dead body. And this man on the road, he looked dead. There was actually a rule for priests. They had to keep uh, four cubits away, which is about six feet from any kind of dead body, lest they get close enough to it and trip and touch it accidentally and become contaminated by it. So the priest doesn't just pass by. He actually changes lanes he moves to the other side of the road and passes the man by because he can't have any part of that. And besides, the man lying in the middle of the road might not even be a Jew. So not my problem. Well, so much for the priest. And besides, here comes somebody else. Look at verse 32. So likewise, a Levite. These were people who assisted the priests. A Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Notice the difference. Very small difference, but it's there between the Levite and the priest. The priest saw the man and switched lanes immediately, but the Levite comes to the place. He stands over the man. He sees his bruises and his wounds. He maybe notices that this man is still breathing. But then he too passes by on the other side. Now here's where the, where the story gets totally outrageous. 
Verse 33, but a Samaritan, you've got to be kidding me. A Samaritan, really. Samaritans were hated by the Jews. Not only were Samaritans considered half-breeds, which is a terrible thing to say, but they also had some different religious beliefs that, frankly, just ticked the Jews off. Nobody liked Samaritans. In a Jew's mind, the world would be a better place without Samaritans. But this Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. In Luke's gospel, compassion is this gut-level emotional response to suffering. If you, it's, it's when you see something terrible happening to another person and you get sick to your stomach. You, you get a lump in your throat and you start sweating. It's this incredible psychological and physiological response to injustice. That's what this Samaritan experiences here. And this compassion, it moves him to immediate action. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Oil and wine were, were the basic elements of, of the first century first aid kit. Oil to soften, to soften the, the skin and wine to cleanse the wound. Then he set him on his animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, that's two days pay, by the way, and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So the story is over and, and I imagine Jesus at this point letting it all sink in. It really was a shocking story to those first century Jews. And then he looks at the lawyer and asks him, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Do you notice the subtle difference between Jesus' question and the lawyer's original question? Verse 29, the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Verse 36, Jesus asks, which of these proved to be a neighbor. The lawyer's question was an abstract theological one. He wanted Jesus to pontificate on the finer points of the law, hoping, of course, that the density of this conversation would be so boring and so tangential, so ridiculous that people would lose interest and the lawyer would get off the hook. But Jesus' question isn't so much a theological one. It's direct it's personal, it's practical. It's a call to action. You say you love God. You say you love your neighbor. Prove it. And isn't that what James says in our New Testament reading? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He says faith without works, is dead. Jesus blows that kind of faith out of the water, and it shocked the lawyer, and it shocked his hearers. So what is God telling us this morning? 
What is God wanting to speak to us this morning through this parable? I'll give you three implications as we close. First, loving God and loving our neighbor is inseparably linked. Every Sunday, when it's not Lent, this morning we heard the the whole uh, Ten Commandments, but every Sunday we hear Jesus' own summary of the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer was right. This is the way of eternal life. But too often, we see this as two different things. Too often, you know, we might be on our knees confessing and we think, I've really done a good job loving God this week, but I've been a crummy neighbor. And it just doesn't work like that. Jesus makes himself the hungry one, the naked one, the homeless one, the sick one, the one in prison, the lonely one, the unwanted one. And remember what he says. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Do you want to love God? Do you want to be close to him and intimate with him? Then give yourself to the service of others. Do you want to do something great for God? Go be a neighbor. High schoolers, as you try to make your faith your own, how will you love God in your schools? Will you devote your life to befriending the marginalized? Will you break away from the comfort of your own friend group and be a healing presence to the lonely? You know, the whole test of our church's love for God, it's about how we move out in mission to love our neighbors. That's the test. Or else... We don't really love God. If our love for God does not translate into love for neighbor, something is terribly, terribly wrong. Because the two are inseparably linked. Second, we do not have neighbors. We make neighbors. We don't have neighbors. We make neighbors. This is a radically anti-modern change of attitude, but it's one we have to make. As Christians, we have to be proactive in loving the people around us. Imagine a kid knowing, uh, going to a school, a new school, for a few months, coming home after a few months, and telling her mom and dad, um, I don't have any friends. A good parent responds by saying, what have you done to make friends, dear? Right? Our world is afraid of relationships. People are afraid they won't be accepted, they won't be valued, and that their own feelings of friendship won't be reciprocated. To a world like that, we have got to be on the move. We have got to be the ones initiating relationships with people in our neighborhoods. Mother Teresa said that love is faith in action. This is what it means to be on mission. Third, and finally, neighbor doesn't just mean friends. It also means enemies. That's not just what this parable shows. It's what Jesus shows us. Why could Jesus talk so tough to this lawyer? Why could he say, prove it? Why could he be so insistent on this? 
It's because Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. You and I were like the lawyer, half dead creatures, mortally wounded by our sins, crippled by our pride, enslaved to anger and lust and laziness and prejudice. We made God our enemy. But Jesus is the good Samaritan, the unexpected Savior, the generous stranger, the wealthy physician who lovingly moves toward us and at enormous personal cost rescues us, heals us, saves us. That's our example. And that's where we draw the power down into us to love the people who hurt us and despise us and mock us and exclude us. It's because we've been loved back to health by the God who made us. It hurt Jesus to love us. It hurt him. And Lent is about identifying with Jesus in that hurt. That's why we allow ourselves to have hunger pangs. That's why we put to death our bad habits and sins. It's because Jesus said to deny ourselves. But sooner or later, Lent should cause each one of us to gaze at Jesus on the cross, dying for us, sighing and heaving great big breaths for us, giving everything for us. And we must hear him say, in the tenderest voice of love, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Our Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy 30. Just listen to this as we close. This commandment that I command you today, it's not too hard for you. This word is very near you. In fact, it's in your mouth. And it's in your heart so that you can do it. The love of God has been poured into our hearts. We can do this, and with God's help, we will.